I'm Nareet Ben. Welcome to Life Deconstructed. Brooke Goldstein is a powerhouse attorney, an award-winning filmmaker, a founder, and a mom of three. Soon after settling on human rights law, she founded the nonprofit Children's Rights Institute, followed up by the Lawfare Project, an organization set up to respond to abuses of the Western legal system and human rights law. You can find her lecturing at law schools across the country and analyzing or debating on major TV networks, unapologetic about her views. Soon after she and her family swapped New York for Tel Aviv, we caught up on how making a documentary about terrorism, when, in her words, she was young and stupid, steered her to human rights, running businesses with three kids, and her tried-and-true tips for stepping up your public speaking game. Brooke Goldstein, so great to see you. Thanks so much for coming on. Such a pleasure. I'm so honored. Well, tell me, you are in Israel now after spending 2020 in New York in the COVID era that we've all been living through. What has that transition been like? Oh, what made me leave New York? Oh, I don't know. There were riots happening two blocks away from where I was living and calls to defund the police and, you know, COVID central over there. It was terrifying. You know, what's happening in the United States is terrifying, frankly. Um, But we didn't run away to escape. Uh, We came here to Israel, actually, because my husband enjoys the weather. And I happen to like Mediterranean food, the diet. So we thought Israel would be a good Good reason (laughs) to hang out. Um, You know what? At this point, I think we all need to appreciate, like what makes a good life and what we enjoy in life and find a way to that. So I support it. Yeah. I've always wanted to come live in Israel for a little bit. It's been a dream of mine and, you know, not only the weather, the people, I love the people. I love the culture. I love everything about this country. There's a beach, you know, you can go play tennis during the day, go swimming in at night. It's cold. So you have a diverse wardrobe even. (laughs) And we all know the foundation of where to live comes down to a diverse wardrobe, clearly. Honestly, that's something that ranks high because I love my sweater look and my winter jacket look. I'm Canadian. Why would I give that up? Well, right. I was just going to say, talk to me in six months when you realize that you no longer need a sweater or jacket ever, ever. But let's rewind back to Toronto. You mentioned you grew up in Canada, in Toronto. You went to McGill. At what point did you realize, did you decide on law school and that this has got to be your direction or have an inkling that that was the direction? I want to know, Nareet, has anyone ever answered a question like that, honestly? Like, has has anyone ever been like, it was at this exact point when I decided my life trajectory? There's never a point. That's exactly what it's all about. I think there's so rarely, there's, it's not like a romantic comedy when you have an epiphany, which is what makes it interesting. How did you start? It's a trick question. (laughs) Not a trick question. You can answer it however you want, but you know how you started to understand. Hey, maybe I'll I'll go do this. I'll tell you something. It's funny. I always knew, and I always knew that I knew, and that was proven as to be a fact when we went and unearthed the time capsule um, <laughs> at the house that we used to live in at 46 Forest Hill Road in Toronto. We buried a time capsule. I think it was like 10 years old, and about three or four years ago, me and my sister Didi went and we got it back and we opened it. And there was a letter I wrote to myself promising myself that amongst things like being a lawyer, I was also going to be the first woman Jewish prime minister of Canada. So I've achieved one. You were laughing before, but actually your story is precisely like a movie. (laughs) 
Is it? It is. It is. Time capsule. What was it about law that even as such a young person that you think made you feel like it was right for you or maybe that you understand today looking back on it? It's funny because you only think as a young person what people tell you to think. And I think because I was so argumentative, people always would say, oh, you'd be a great lawyer. (laughs) So then I actually believed I'm going to be a great lawyer. And I decided I became one. (laughs) So you, you go to Cardoso when you found yourself actually there doing the thing that people were always telling you you would be good at. Did you feel like you were in the right place at that point? Or was it still a process of discovery? I love Cardozo. I think what the process of discovery is the type of law that I wanted to practice. I thought I was going into entertainment law, but after doing a couple internships in the field, I realized very quickly it wasn't for me. And I got turned on actually to documentary filmmaking by a friend of mine from McGill University, Alistair Leyland, who became the co-producer of my documentary film, The Making of a Martyr, which also was another point in my career and set me off on a whole other trajectory where I got involved in human rights law. Right. So actually, I mean, that was exactly what I wanted to ask you, because I imagine as a young lawyer or a student, it can be tempting to go into some of the, at least what we think of the most lucrative parts of that field, the corporate world, entertainment law, like you were saying. So how did human rights become the right path for you? I don't know if it's the right path. It's definitely the path that I'm on right now. Um, And the way I got into that is I did a documentary film on the recruitment, the illegal state-sponsored recruitment of innocent Muslim children towards violence. I spent over two-year period, many weeks in areas like Janine, Ramallah, Tulkam, Nablus, and uh, we filmed firsthand interviews with young, innocent Muslim children who had been recruited to become suicide bombers, child soldiers, to act as human shields. And I thought, well, heck, I got a law degree, so I should use it to raise awareness about this practice and try and stop it. Well, let's pause on on that film for a moment. So this is in 2006. And you you just mentioned some of the places that you were traveling to, but you also had in this firsthand interviews with members of Islamic Jihad, of Hamas, of, of terrorist groups, as well as with families of suicide bombers. So you're, you know, a young sort of student or just fresh out at this point. Tell me how, how did this come about and how, as a sort of young unknown person, do you end up getting interviews with these people? Well, we were young and stupid, to put it mildly um, and truthfully, that we sort of fell into it. I came to Israel I promised my parents I wouldn't do anything stupid. We were going to do a film about the recruitment of child suicide bombers, but from the academic perspective, and we had a whole lot of interviews lined up with a lot of ivory tower style counterterrorism and legal experts. And I ended up meeting a journalist named Matthew Kalman. And he then introduced me to a gentleman named Masad Abu Toama, who is the older brother of uh, Khalid Abu Toma, who is a writer for the Jerusalem Post. And Masad was an interesting character. Um, I would say he's a movie into himself. Um, and he basically said to us, you know, you want the real story. And we said, sure. He's like, okay, meet me tomorrow at this place and I'll take you somewhere and you can see firsthand. And you know, I don't think we asked too many questions. And then he became our fixer where we paid him a daily rate and he set up interviews with people like Zachariah Zubedi, who at that time was the leader of the Al-Aqsa Brigades in Janine. 
He took us to schools, as you said, run by Islamic Jihad, preschools run by Islamic Jihad. And we filmed everything that we saw. And it was an incredibly eye-opening experience. So on that note, do you sort of remember yourself at that time? Because that's a pretty, as you say, eye-opening experience to have at the beginning of your professional life. What do you think you maybe learned about yourself during that time? Or what kind of stood out to you that you think stayed with you? Um, I learned I was a coward. Uh, I wouldn't think that, observing. um, Reckless with my own life as well as being a coward. I'll tell you why. Because look, if we're getting personal here, I always thought that I would be a hero in a situation where your life was threatened. I mean, you have this vision of yourself. And obviously having grandparents who survived the Holocaust, my go-to example as well. If I was in the Holocaust, you know, would I share my bread? Would I risk my life to fight in the ghetto? Would I do whatever the heroic activity is? And I was like, yeah, I, I would definitely be that person. But then fast forward, I'm 26 years old, as you mentioned, sitting in a room with 15 armed terrorists of the al of Martyr Brigades with guns pointed at my head and interviewing them about how they strap bomb on kids and blow them up by remote control. And I remember thinking, number one, how scared I was that I would do anything to get out. Anything. I would have given up my own cameraman. I would have given up my best friend to escape from that situation. I realized, wow. I have a a very deep fear of death. You know, I I realized something about myself that you can't judge, number one, someone in a situation, how they'd act, and you never know how you would act until you're in that situation. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that's a pretty incredible experience, though, to have at that age and to realize some kind of profound things about yourself that many people maybe don't even ever realize or, or much later in life. But I mean, cowardice and courage take many forms and I definitely don't think of you that way because when you look at the arc of where you went from there, by the next year, you founded the Children's Rights Institute. Three years after that, you founded the Lawfare Project. And we'll get into exactly what you guys do there. But what gave you the the courage, actually, you know, the confidence to say, I'm going to go start my own thing rather than this classic join a law firm route and work your way up? Well, I think that's simply the inability to work for other people. <laughs> I tried that a couple of times. I didn't really like <laughs> Which it. I guess you realized. <laughs> How did you realize that? I need to be my own boss. That said, obviously, the Lawfare Project has, has a board of directors. <laughs> but that's important. Let's stop there for a second. How did you learn? Because that's 100% a thing. I mean, some people are born to be entrepreneurs, to be their own boss. Others thrive much better in organization atmosphere. How did you come to realize that there's one way for you? Well, you know, every day is a struggle. First of all, one is not better than the other. Oftentimes, I sit and think, oh my God, how much better would my life be if I could clock in, clock out, I could separate my work life and my home life and you know, now with three kids and working all the time, it just consumes you, especially when you're in this industry. It consumes you at every level and it takes a toll on you. It takes a toll on your family life. It takes a toll on you as a mom. So not to say one is better than the other, but I have been really blessed in my life to have good ideas that I'm able to bounce off mentors around me and try to carry them out when I see that there needs improvement or something has to be done. And when it came to child suicide bombing, there was a ridiculous lack of reporting. There was all out denial by human rights organizations that this was happening, that Muslim children are being recruited as suicide bombers and child soldiers on a massive scale. The level of hate and indoctrination towards violence happening in the Islamist world is is you know 
akin to mass forms of child abuse. And if you talk about it, you're called an Islamophobe or you're called a racist. And I thought this was wrong. And as a lawyer, I consider my client to be these children who don't have anyone advocating for them. And I take it very seriously. So I thought this was something I had to do and and there was no organization doing it. So I had to found my own and I filed for 501c3 status and I ran that for a bit. Um, And then I realized, you know, working in this industry, I did actually work at the Middle East Forum for two and a half years under the tutelage of Daniel Pipes, who's an incredible thought hero. And I learned working from him also that there was no Jewish Civil Rights Litigation Fund in existence. So I founded my own and that became the Lawfare Project. Let's talk about nuts and bolts for a moment because it's one thing to look at this incredible resume and you founded this organization and then that one and you're pursuing what you feel is is so missing in this field. But how do you actually get that off the ground? What was the learning curve like in terms of, of starting that yourself, of gaining traction, of forming your reputation in the field? So every day obviously is a learning curve because we are paving you know, new roads. We are filing civil rights lawsuits where there is simply no precedent. We are taking risks. Um, But the number one lesson I've learned is to hire the right people for the right job and do not micromanage them. Let them do their thing and have a work environment that's not just, you know, friendly, but where you respect the person you hired as an expert on a subject I would say that out of 100 things I've done, 99 are inspired by ideas that have been pitched to me and I have been able to bounce or I've initiated and bounced off extensively other people and they've been collaborative efforts and I'm just the one carrying them out. So yeah, I'm just really blessed to work in an environment where I have surrounded myself with experts, experts in the law, experts from different jurisdictions. We have over 400 lawyers around the world who are the top of their field, um, who are working with us on groundbreaking civil rights lawsuits. That is so exciting to me. I get to learn from them every day. It's amazing. Yeah, that's 100%, I think, the dream on a very fundamental level to be surrounded by people who you learn from and who challenge you and who make your work interesting. So you mentioned earlier your three beautiful boys and and some of the challenges inherent in this. And I think, by the way, what you were talking about, sometimes this fantasy of maybe I should just clock in and clock out. I feel like that's something that's so widely shared by entrepreneurs or people you know, running the show and vice versa. And then the staff people are like, oh, I I could just control my own hours and leave whenever I want and be my own boss. There's always those two sides of it and to process and figuring out where we fit. But anyway, I mean, at least from the outside, you, you're you sort of this perfect image of the career woman archetype <laughs> that we grow up with. What was it like for you becoming a mom the first time? I mean, where, where were you at in your life? So just to, to play off what you were saying, you know, people like us, I feel like we can't clock out even if we wanted to, because when I tried to clock out, it doesn't work. You get antsy. You you have so many ideas. You want to work. It's your raison d'être. It's something that your work defines you as you are. I tried actually during mat leave to do that. And one of the stories that my employees Uh, famously tell to make fun of me is that I was (laughs) frankly all drugged up 
giving birth and texting from my iPhone, <laughs> like while dilating oh and the epidural. And they were like, you're not making sense. Stop it. Because birth is a long process. You could be in birth for hours and hours. You're like, I got some downtime and here. Let me just get some yeah. emails done. Oh my God. <laughs> exactly. Right. So that's what it was like for me in labor. And then um, my first, it's just a shock. I remember I I had an emergency C-section and that was very shocking to me. Again, the fear of death was a factor there. And I'm sitting on the operating table. I can't feel the lower half of my body. My guts are being spilled out on the table. All of a sudden you hear, wait, it's huge relief and you don't care about anything except for this baby. And then I remember thinking as I was leaving the hospital, like, what? You know, they're going to let me leave with this life? They trust me to take care of a human being? I don't know what I'm doing. With no instructions. Yeah, <laughs> instruction manual. What was that first period like for you then of motherhood, especially given how you describe yourself of, you know, having a hard time stepping away from work and given the fact that it's not just any job, but it's something that you've created. It's also your baby in a way. So frankly, I don't even remember it because I have three kids now and I feel like having one kid was almost like not even having a child because at that point you and your husband outnumber the child. (laughs) And if you have a nanny, you're three on one. So (laughs) it was like an accessory. No, I'm kidding. Um, It's very, very, very hard to balance being a working mom, having children, Um, who are young. I have three children under the age of six and having a job that's more than full-time. Working women in my life, like my aunt Marilyn, for example, she's a partner at Blank Rome and she is an incredible person, incredible mentor. I don't know how she does it. I don't know how any of us do it really. It's a miracle. Is there something that you think has helped you along the way figure out how to, for lack of a better word, how to balance those two things? Although I think balance is kind of an overused term for for the whole work-life balance thing. I hate to say- How to manage that in a way that makes you happy. Yeah. I hate to say something as cliche as this, but it really is all about time management and being able to set aside time with your kids when you consciously say, I'm not going to do work. I'm not going to look at my phone. I am happy being in the moment right now with my children. I have everything I need here. Nothing else matters. And and you have to set aside time to give that attention to your kids. One of the things that really scares me is that a lot of children are growing up with parents and nannies who when they're talking, don't look them in the eye, but are looking in the phone and doing something else. And they're getting, uh-huh, yeah, okay. Right. What that does to a child's self-confidence, I don't want to know. Yeah, 100%. And kids also learn so much from just what they see, never mind what they hear. But if they're seeing everyone around them being tuned out all the time, on their phones all the time, I can't imagine the the long-term impact also, I guess, you know, parents everywhere see it. I'm on my way there. So I can't uh, say I've had the experience yet, but I'm always thinking about that when I think about, you know, myself as a future mom or when I see my friends in that situation. It's really scary to me because we really were the last generation that's ever going to use a map on a road trip that's ever going to go to the forest and camp and like not have a cell phone and call someone. Those basic life experiences and just the sense of being sort of independent and you have to figure it out without access to Google or your cell phone that I think human beings have had up until now in our development is gone. 
is gone. Yeah. So the human mind and, and the way that people interact now going forward is going to be incredibly different. I remember I used to have, when I went to McGill, when I went to university, I had a piece of paper where I wrote all my friends' names on and their phone numbers. And that was where I kept all my friends. That was my Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) The original Facebook. The number name book. On that note, one of the things I think about also for us, I mean, before you even get to kids, but just for us is what I like to sort of call blank spaces, which is, you know, all the moments that once upon a time we were just with ourselves, whether it's like waiting for a friend at the bar who's late or waiting in line or whatever it might be, all these little moments in life that in the past you were just with yourself and thinking and observing things around you. And now the second we have a moment free, it's filled. It's filled with our phones. And I always wonder what that does to not have those little bits of time to sort of process and reflect that I think probably add up to a lot at the end of the day. Children have that. Children have that and you see them because my children don't have phones, okay? So I see them all the time sitting and thinking and and kind of talking to themselves sometimes. And I know I do it with myself, I guess, in the sense that I do have an inner voice and I play out things in my head. And, you know, before I do speaking engagements or before I go on television or even if I'm planning a venture, like I have to sit in that quiet space and really not only talk it out in my head, but write it down a lot. I, I spend a lot of time writing with a pen and a piece of paper because I can't think on a computer. Yeah, it's a whole different process. Actually, I mean, that really interests me because you just talked a bit about it, but you're by now a veteran public speaker, a super strong public speaker, persuasive, powerful, whether in a TV studio or to audiences around the world. How did you hone that skill? Because that's something that so many people fear and, and also that so many people need. Practice, practice, practice. There's no way, I think, to be a good public speaker without speaking publicly many, many times and getting to know who you are as a speaker, what your tone is, what your voice is, what the audience reacts to you, you know, what subjects you're better at. You have to practice. I think that I have been for the majority of my career, a most terrible public speaker until probably just recently when I've finally become comfortable enough that I know my subject. I know I'm an expert in my subject. And, you know, I have a lot of knowledge and experience about my field that I want to share with people. Yeah, I think for sure. Also, someone often on the opposite end of that interviewing people and and doing some speaking of my own, that's the foundation is if you're comfortable with what you're talking about, if you command the subject, the content, that's really the most important. And then a lot of confidence can come from that. Are there certain things, I mean, you mentioned using a pen and paper to write, which I think is great because it really does give you a different way of processing information than typing something into your phone. But are there other sort of tips you've picked up along the way or things that yeah. that help you in that field? So, so the one thing I always do, and I just it just came to me, and this is what's developed over time as my process, is I will write out my whole speech, okay? And then I will rewrite it. First, I'll type it on my computer And then I will write it by hand and I will write it five, six, or seven times. But every time I write it, it gets distilled. So whereas I typed every word, then I write, you know, just a couple words per sentence. And then the next reiteration is one word per sentence. And then the next reiteration, you know, becomes the ultimate one where I have a two hour speech, which is really 
25 bullet points of one word. So I've memorized the speech in, in a sense, and I know what I'm talking about, but I'm not reading it from the page. That one word will remind me of that entire paragraph or that concept that I've practiced over and over again. And then ultimately when I'm speaking, I always have a pen and I never stick to the script. So while I'm speaking, obviously, if you're thinking human being, other ideas will come to you. So I will go on that tangent and I will speak. After I've finished that thought, I will come back to the bullet point and stay on track and move through the speech that way. But I will always inevitably go off script. That is such great advice to be able to distill concepts so that you have something that sort of jars your memory, that you know you know what the story is and that you can elaborate on it and then always have a place to come back to. Because nobody wants to hear anyone who's, I mean, honestly, even if it's news and broadcasting, who's just straight up reading robotically from a script, it's not compelling and it's not natural and yeah. it does need to be conversational. So that's a really great tip. Yeah. I think one of the things that it's super, super important is always have someone in the audience who's listening to you for the purpose of constructive feedback. And you don't go to that person and say, how did I do? Was it great? You go to that person and say, what are your points on how to improve that? And they will give them to you. And then, you know, say, you know, when you said so-and-so or, you know, commented on this, the audience didn't react so well. You might want to consider changing that or what you were saying didn't flow. Always, always have someone give you constructive feedback. Yeah, that's great. An honest sounding board is so important. For you, it's not just public speaking, though. You're also sort of a master debater. And obviously, a career in law helps prepare you for that. And as you said, you've been argumentative since you were a child. So I guess you have it in your bones somewhere. But how has that developed for you over the years? So I honestly believe that if the truth and the law are on your side, and you're articulate, you will win that debate. Because if what you're arguing, you honestly, honestly believe to be truthful, then you should be able to undermine someone's arguments, at least using something as simple as the Socratic method. So the first time that I really did a debate, a public debate, I guess, um, although the format wasn't a debate, it was a talk with, you know, two sides. It was when Alan Dershowitz hosted at Cardozo, the screening of the making of a martyr, my film, my documentary film. And this was in 2007. And I was debating Hamid Debashi, who was, and I think still is the Edward Said protege chair person at Columbia University. And I, who was notorious for his just disgusting Jew hatred and hatred of the Jewish state. Um, so I invited him to come appear. The audience watched the film. And then afterwards, it was, you know, a moderated discussion. And I started by asking Dabashi, you know, if he, uh, and this is an apologist, by the way, for, for Palestinian Islamic terror. I asked him if he thought it was okay to kill a Muslim child. And he said it wasn't. I said, well, if it's not okay to kill a Muslim child, is it okay to teach a Muslim child to kill himself? And obviously he said no. And I said, well, if that's not okay, is it okay to strap a bomb on an innocent Muslim child and blow that child up by remote control, which is what they were doing back in the second intifada? And he said no. And we worked our way up from there. We started with the basic truth that all children are innocent. They don't deserve to be murdered. And from that premise, we worked up 
to the point where he ended up endorsing my film. And to this day, I have a quote from Hamid Dabashi and Alan Dershowitz promoting my documentary film, The Making of a Martyr. Wow. So slowly build up your argument really from, from the foundation, the foundational concept, and lead people one step at a time. Let me ask you bigger picture than in all the path that you've made so far, especially in, in starting your own organizations and leading teams and so on. Is there something that stands out as sort of your most difficult moment? You know, something that really marked you that you think maybe you changed your direction or, or taught you a, a lesson that stayed with you? I wouldn't say that there was one particular moment, but I think the nature of my work There's been a lot of times where I have had to make difficult decisions that will affect people's lives. So it's a little daunting. And then, you know, all you can really do is just pray to God that you've made the right decision. And you're also entrusted with your donors' funds, and they want to make sure that those funds are being spent in a way that upholds the civil rights of the Jewish community. So God forbid you file a lawsuit and you fail and you set a bad precedent that has a ripple effect on the community. That's a really big burden that you have to carry. So one of the most difficult things I do is with the limited funds that we have, pick and choose the cases that we feel serve the public interest the best And then, you know, be a part of a legal team that works so hard to make the right arguments before judges to win precedential setting cases for our community. But I'll tell you, even when you lose, sometimes you win. We were really depressed as a team when we lost our case before the European Court of Justice on behalf of Sago Winery, when we were arguing that the discriminatory way that the Europeans label Israeli products, Jewish products from Judea and Samaria was a violation of of their basic civil rights and their commercial rights. And we lost that case. And and it ended up that, that we created a precedent in the European Court of Justice, which is the Supreme Court of Europe, that it's okay to apply discriminatory and uh, derogatory labeling on Israeli goods. But what happened? I mean, the ruling was so egregious, so outrageous, such an affront to justice that it was, at least I would hope, part of the reason why U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo came just recently, visited Sago Winery, and declared that it would now be U.S. policy to label goods made by Jews in Judea and Samaria as made in Israel. So while we lost on the one sense in the European level, what we gained in the United States was so much greater. So again, these are important cases that the teams that we work with are bringing. So you have to really take that into account. You can't just be making decisions willy-nilly. You have to really weigh the consequences. What's your take on so-called failure in your experience? Do you think that's something that has helped shape how you process things or learning about yourself? Or is it more of the thing you, you try to stay away from? Well, I think the quote comes to mind. What's the definition of insanity? It's it's doing the same thing over and over again and, and expecting different results. So my dad did a twist on that. And he says, what's the definition of stupidity? It's making the same mistake over and over again. You know, everybody makes mistakes. It's you have to learn from your mistakes. That is basically what life is all about. Um, It's about learning from your mistakes, changing your 
behavior and getting stronger, obviously, to continue to, to take risks. Life is all about risk taking and how you measure those risks and what you learn when you fail and what you gain when you win. I love that. So let me just ask you a couple more questions before I let you go that, you know, risk is one thing that makes me think of. First of all, when we started out, you were saying, you know, this is my path for now. And certainly I'm I'm a big believer that we don't have to have just one path, one field, one career, whatever it is throughout our lives or even in a in a short period of time. After all that you've done and accomplished today when you when you look ahead, is there something else that you feel sort of calls to you? or that land undiscovered risks that you want to take? Absolutely. I mean, we just launched End Jew Hatred, which is the first ever Jewish civil rights movement in the diaspora. I first of all, I don't think anybody has just one path. I see the, you know, the phrase carpe diem sees the day. It, it's about seizing all the opportunities that are thrown at you, no matter where they're thrown from. So for example, I, I've made a film, I wrote a book, I'm a lawyer, I've done a lot of television, and now I'm, I'm super excited to be a part of this grassroots civil rights movement, which is something I've never done before. And it's a totally different approach. It's a ground up approach. It's about civil rights advocacy um, on a different scale. It's about partnership with, I think there's about 15 or 16 other organizations and social media influencers. I, I knew nothing about that until like a couple months ago. So I, I've jumped into this new movement together with a bunch of other activists. And it's really, I think, one of the most exciting things I've done. Yeah, it's so important to not have to feel like we have to box ourselves into one title or whatever. You know, there's like the LinkedIn title, the resume title, the introducing yourself at parties thing of the what do you do? And and it's easy to get into this thinking that you can just be one thing and a combination of many might take away from a different role or title that you have when I really believe the opposite is true. But it's sometimes easier said than done in terms of how we feel about it. Yeah, I mean, it's a pushback that actually I get a Really? In what way? People have always said to me, well, if you're doing this, how can you focus on that? And first of all, I'm a mother of three children, <laughs> so I can focus on multiple things at a time, number one. Duh. But second of all, these things all complement each other. Right. For some reason in the Jewish world, we all put ourselves in these boxes. Well, you're a, a law firm. You, you shouldn't be doing civil rights advocacy. And you know, you think to yourself, like, wait a minute. So if you are involved in civil rights litigation, you shouldn't be doing civil rights advocacy. That doesn't make any sense. You, you should be doing it. There should be a huge element of what you're doing that's meant to publicize and, and rally and mobilize the community to demand equal protection under the law, which is complemented by groundbreaking civil rights lawsuits. Isn't that how the other side does it? And yet we're so boxed in. And I think there there needs to be a paradigm shift in that sense. And social media is really good for that because people who are multi-talented are able to achieve multiple things at the same time and have it all linked together and promote it together and connect with others and grow their movements that I feel like almost everyone's successful at this point, like you said, has their hands in, in multiple projects simultaneously. Yeah. And I think that's completely a, a wider cultural societal thing as well. And it can be even more extreme parts of the spectrum. You know, you could be doing something that is wholly academic on one side and wholly 
creative and artistic in another and one doesn't have to take away from the other. So I think that's great to own that and to not be swayed by by the people who don't get that quite yet. Let me ask you finally this question I, I kind of always want to know the answer to, which is here at this partway moment in your path, what kind of advice or thoughts would you have for 20-year-old Brooke before she embarked on all of that? Appreciate how skinny you are. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I don't know. I would just say something to encourage me to seize every opportunity. There were a couple opportunities that I feel like I let go that I should have done, but um, I got enough under my belt. Yeah, you have enough going for you right now. But that's uh, that's always good advice is to take opportunities with both hands and don't be afraid to jump in as long as it feels right for you, obviously. Yes, absolutely. Well, Brooke Goldstein, I'll let you get back to the three children and the running the business and the multiple, multiple multitasking <laughs> life that you have going. It's been great talking to you. You too. Thank you so much for having me. And I want to wish you a healthy, happy pregnancy. Bisha Atova, you are going to be the most wonderful mom, Nareed. I'm so excited. Thank you so much. I'll, I'll have some separate calls for need of advice in the future. Don't worry. It's coming. I'm here for you. We'll talk soon. And that is it for season one of the Life Deconstructed podcast. I have so enjoyed having these conversations with so many inspiring women from all across different fields and backgrounds. An ex-CIA operative, a Google director, a fashion mogul, founders, CEOs, entrepreneurs, musicians, chefs, award-winning journalists, and producers. Getting to look behind the curtain at how they actually got to where they are. Most often surprising, unpredictable paths with a lot of mistakes made and lessons learned along the way. If you missed out on some of the episodes, we'd love you to listen and tell us what you think. And what you want to hear in season two. Thanks so much for listening.